Good morning, dear church. It's good to see everyone today. Happy Lord's Day. We're going to be in uh, 1 Peter, to, starting today in, in our blue Bibles in front of you. We're going to start on page 1014. So if you don't have a Bible with you, please find, um, you know, first of all, if you don't have a Bible, we're happy for you to take one of ours and share. But if you need one for today, we're going to be on 1014 there. But before we start, I need to ask Chris, if you'll go out in the front and just find some flowers, put some flowers in there and bring them back. There we go. Okay. Well, let's begin where Mike left off last week. Remember, he was talking about uh, the wise will of God. He showed us from uh, Proverbs 16, a couple of texts where we see God's wise will unfold and how uh, specifically how in our hearts we plan our course. But the Lord is the one who directs our steps. Now, apart from any specific context, that can be comforting for us because we may oftentimes assume that God desires something pleasant and easy for us. But what if he doesn't? What if in his providence, he directs our steps in the oddest of ways through griefs of various kinds? What then? What shall we think of God's will? Well, Mike showed us last week that God's will for us is more about who we are and who we're becoming than it is any particular set of decisions before us. And as uh, I think we may see here in, this, in the coming weeks in 1 Peter, we're going to see something of the wise will of God unfold in 1 Peter over these next several weeks as we see his will for his people revealed in the grand and marvelous work of salvation, of sanctification, and of glory. His will is hard to see in the moment for the initial hearers of this letter, and oftentimes for us. But even when we can't see it, God is still accomplishing it because he is setting apart a people for himself according to his perfect plan. If God's will is more about the people we are to be than the momentary decisions that we're making, then may, it may explain this very curious course that he unfolds through the letter here, whereby the church whom he died for is now suddenly dispersed across the Roman Empire, suffering. Hey, thanks. Nice, nice selection. Thanks, Chris. This church is dispersed across the Roman Empire, and they're exiles, living in exile. How is this comport with God's wise will? as they suffer seemingly outside of the abundant life that God came to give. Well, now there's more to follow on this in the weeks ahead, more about submission and suffering and the way that he forms us for glory in ways that are beyond human understanding, sometimes beyond what we can even bear. But this morning, Peter begins with the end in view, a view of heaven and of God's grand design in giving us life commensurate with heaven. So if you found the passage, then let's read together from 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. And as we do, let's see with Peter something of God's glory in the work of salvation and the gift of heaven. And kiddos, for you, I want you to listen as we're reading. See if you can hear with your ear. Who is it? Is it God the Father or God the Son or God the Spirit who is at work in the salvation of the church? Okay? So kiddos, listen for that, and I'll ask you after we read. Okay, so with that, if you found 1 Peter, let's read together. 
To those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What a sweet text, church. This promise is to you and for your children. Listen, because it is good. So kiddos, did you hear? Who's at work in our salvation? Is it God the Father? Is it God the Son? Is it God the Spirit? Or is it all three? What do you think, kiddos? All three. All three. Shepherd. Okay. Okay, Team Kipe says all three. Either some expert theological instruction going on at home, or they're indecisive. Could be either one. All three. Okay, good. I don't hear any, of, of, any objection. It is all three. It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We see all three among the Trinity at work in the salvation of the church. Mike showed us last week that God is not hiding his will for us. And here we see the beauty of his will revealed. From heaven, of heaven, unfolding through the harmonious work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the text. And what is his will? See, in verse 3, it's the salvation of the people that he's chosen in verse 2. For his praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed in verse 7. That is his glorious will. We see here the three persons of the Trinity working together from heaven through distinct contributions, but to a single common end. His glory and our good. And what a comfort and reminder to the early church who felt that they were alone and scattered in the world. 
to hear that God was working from heaven while they were dispersed across the Roman Empire. That God was working unanimously together to cause all things to work together for their good. And let's see how. Let's see how. First, we see in verse 1, the Father chose them, electing them according to his foreknowledge. So on one level here, the people who initially heard this were described as exiles. They're rejected by Rome, but they are not ultimately exiles because they are chosen by God. Deliberately chosen, purposefully chosen, not in any way by accident, they were chosen. And who is the one who chooses them? It is God the Father. Peter is telling the dispersion here, those whom the Father drew to himself, but who were scattered among the Roman world, that they were not cast away from the Father as they were being so by Rome, because the Father chose them, and so were all who were born again. Church, before we could choose him, he chose us. He chose us. We were chosen by him and for him to dwell with him. Paul explains the same thing to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 3 and following when he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Church, this is the great hope of the church. Not that we are holding fast to God. By all means, we should do so. But that he is holding fast to us because he chose us. Mm. See what's happening here in the letter? The church is rejected by the world, but loved by the Father. The church is scattered across Rome, but is being gathered by the Father. The Father loves you, church. Before you were able to love him, he loved and chose you. Indeed, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in verse 3. If we understand verse 1 and 2 rightly, verse 3 is a natural response, or maybe supernatural response of the heart. But it's not only the Father. Kiddos, you're right. It's not only the Father at work in our salvation, but who else do we see here? We also see the Son. Jesus comes from heaven. He is the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. And He dwelt among us that He might smell like the sheep that He loved and be slaughtered as a lamb in their place. His death is the means by which he gives us life in verse 2. And we are made born again through his being raised to life, verse 3. So we see the Father chose us in love, and the Son, for the joy set before him, purchased us by his death. But we also see the Spirit. We see the Spirit here in this magnificent work of salvation. The Spirit also comes from heaven in verse 12. We see that to accomplish the work of our sanctification in verse 2. A sanctification that ultimately culminates in our glorification when the salvation that Jesus accomplished for us is fully revealed in the last time, as we see in verse 5. It is a tremendous orchestration of the Trinity at work 
doing something extraordinary beyond belief. All three of them working together harmoniously for our good. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. Church, he's doing the same thing for us even now. So the Spirit completes the work of changing us that started by the work of Jesus saving us in obedience to Father who planned the work from before the foundation of the world. He is three persons working in inexpressible harmony and unity from a love that is costly and beyond price. And what is the work in unity? What is the work that he's doing? Saving, giving life, and redeeming. And he's doing these things together within himself in some way that I can neither understand nor explain to you, church. He is a plurality of one, and within his plurality, doing many different things which all culminate in the greatest and most glorious end. Church, remember, remember from this text, angels are seen in this text watching human redemptive history unfold. And it's not with blase, ho-hum, this is boring. They're watching intently with wonder and fascination. That's how glorious this is happening. This is how, that's how glorious this thing that's happening is. We should follow suit with the angels. The three among God, the three among the Godhead are working with a unity of purpose that goes beyond my understanding. But we don't have to understand everything here to be faithful with what we do understand. So let us be faithful with the, with the little that we do know so that we may be faithful with much more later on regarding the understanding of the Trinity, okay? Whatever else may be learned from our salvation from this text, I pray that we would see how God is working together in a way that puts each among the Trinity's love and beauty on display in the context of the other members of the Trinity, okay? There's going to be a point of application here, so try to listen and follow here. God's salvific work is played out among the three, perhaps so that we may be saved and live as one to better image his Trinitarian unity. Peter is showing us something beautiful about God who loves because he is love. And as love, his relational nature is reflected in his Trinitarian inner workings between the Father and the Son and the Spirit that can only be imaged in the context of community. So the question for us here then is this. Is there something more satisfying that we might enjoy about God when living in the closest thing that we have or know of the Trinity? Christian community. Hmm. I mean, true or false, everyone in this room is an image bearer of God. It's true. But if you're not a Christian, still an image bearer of God. Yet there is something terribly lacking, something missing. Even if you being made in the image of God, if you're not a Christian, there's something lacking. And it's because if, though we are made in the image of God, if we do not love God with all of our heart and mind and strength, and we do not love our neighbor as ourself, then that image of God is marred in some detestable way. But when God restores that relationship with us through Christ, then we are reconciled to him and our neighbor as ourself. And we are able to better image God in community 
than we ever could apart when we were our own God living for our own pleasures. And I got to think it has something to do with God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. All that work, loving one another in some remarkable way that I don't even know how to say, but is somehow undeniable when you see the church living together with a common hope in the salvation he's given us in Christ. I wonder if there's not something more each of us could be thinking about, how we live in the context of community with the express point and purpose of trying to understand more and more about how God himself lives within his own community of Father and Son and Spirit. So the first thing that we see from the text this morning is that the glory of God is on display in the Father and the Son and the Spirit at work in the Trinitarian masterpiece, masterpiece of salvation. And it is indeed a great salvation. For he has called us, caused us to be born again to a living hope in verse 3. Let's consider the magnitude of this beauty, at least as far as we can. Okay, so God is the author of life. He made every living thing beautiful in its season, just like these flowers. He made them for his own glory. That's why he, God made all things for his glory. That flower, the bouquet, lovely. God made that. Creation is glorious. But what if the author of life has more to say about life than can be explained in the Garden of Eden? or in mere creation. Creation is glorious, it's true, but it costs God nothing to make all things. It didn't even take him more than six days. Boop, spoke it into being. I say that like it's easy. Impossible for me, but was it hard for God to create all things in six days? I don't think so cost him nothing to make creation. It cost, him, it cost him his only begotten son to recreate it. Right. Adam gives up a rib, gets a wife. Jesus sheds his blood, which is more glorious. <laughs> creation or the recreation? He made all the perishable things that we see to point us to something that is imperishable. All the things that we can't see. All the perishable things that we see around us and all their glory should point us to the imperishable that we can't see. This flower is a good example of the beauty of God's creation. Its beauty cannot be refuted. No one's going to say this is an ugly flower. It's glorious because it reflects the God who thought it up and spoke it into being. But it doesn't last. It doesn't last. And this time next week, that flower will be a different metaphor altogether. But church, here in verse 3, it's a gem for us. Because we see, we see how God is using even death to bring in new life. He has caused us to be born again to a living, not dead, hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Church, we were born again. And, and in our being born again, we are more alive than we ever could have been in the garden. 
because God is giving us life through his own death instead of just his spoken word. Church, this is our living hope, that he died for our sins, and now death itself is dead. That's our living hope. But it gets better. It gets better. He not only gives us living hope and eternal life, but he keeps it for us so that it cannot perish. It cannot fade. It cannot spoil. It does not go away. Neither we nor our salvation nor our inheritance can be lost because he is keeping it for us and he is keeping us for heaven. That's verse four. We can't unearn our salvation. It cannot be stolen because he is guarding it. He is guarding it and us in verse 5. Let me illustrate this from Peter's own life. Okay, Because Peter's the one who's writing this. So let me illustrate this from his life. Remember, it was Peter whom the devil asked to sift his wheat. Peter was in dire straits. And the devil was seeking his destruction. But Jesus told Peter that he prayed for him that his faith would not fail. Judas, not so much, fell and was given over. But Peter was preserved. Was it because Peter was smarter, better? No. It's because his inheritance was kept for him and he could not fall. Because Jesus kept him. His inheritance could not be lost because it was kept in heaven for him and he was guarded by God's power through faith as Peter explains here in verse 5. The first readers of this letter, church, also were facing hard trials. And over the next few years after this letter, they were going to see much, much worse under Nero. Peter himself, as church history records for us, would die under Nero just a few years after writing this letter. But though they would die, they would not be lost. No, rather than be lost, God would achieve the exact opposite of them through the testing of their faith to prove its genuineness and increase their capacity to praise God, as we see in verses 6 and 7. Peter was affirming the church that what God had begun in them, God would carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What a tremendous Trinitarian masterpiece of salvation, church. Because God is more glorified in recreation than in creation, and he seals this for us in the resurrection of Jesus. And do you see who's watching this grand work of recreation? Do you see? The prophets of old in verse 10 are, are, are featured here. And then, and then the angels in heaven in verse 12. They're all earnestly seeking to understand the work of salvation. And they're not, active, they're not passively just walking or watching. They're, they're actively watching and they're delighting in God's glory, who's doing immeasurably more than all they could ask or imagine. Now, thinking back to Proverbs, where we've been over the last many months, Proverbs verse 25, verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out the matter. And that's what we see happening here with the prophets and the angels doing here. They're searching it out, trying to understand the times and the person that the Spirit was pointing them. They're standing in awe, watching the angels, the, the angels are standing in awe watching God do for us what God has never done for any of them. No angel 
in creation has ever been saved by grace. The angels that sinned against God are destined for the lake of fire. There is no forgiveness there. No angel has ever been born again or saved by grace through faith. But Peter? This guy flat out blasphemes Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And Jesus is taking his place on the cross? His place in hell? What do you do with that, church? The angels are watching God do for Peter what he's never done for the angels. And God's not unkind to the angels. He's, he's extravagantly generous to us. Peter should be in hell with Judas and the devil. <laughs> but he's not in church. It's because he was chosen by the Father and his inheritance is being kept from him in heaven just like us. Not the angels. The angels are watching with some extraordinary fascination because they've never seen anything like it. So for us, Peter gives three brilliant layers of God's salvific work for us here in this text that could be instructive for us to ponder together. Our salvation, past, present, and future. Let's think about these, and I want to encourage you, church, to try to sharpen one another in the days ahead. Think about these truths together. All right, so our salvation is past tense in verse 3. Okay, in verse 3, he says, he has given us new birth. Our salvation is sealed. It's done. He's already saved us. Past tense. It's also present tense in verses 5 and 9. We are being shielded and receiving the goal of our faith. It's happening right now. So we are, we've been saved. We're being saved. And then it's also future tense. Verses 4 and 5. We are shielded until the coming salvation for an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. God the Father and the Son and the Spirit are working past and present and future in some way that blows my mind. The proper response to all this, church, is not morbid curiosity, but praise. God's plan for us began before time and is being worked out beyond what time can measure. What an inheritance to think about this week. In the mundane routines of life or in the chaos when there are no routines in life? This week, church, as we live together, we should look. We should look to imitate this. For what would it look like for us to be more, uh, to more, uh, be freely uh, inclined to remind one another of these great truths of the faith? Because they are easily forgotten. These great truths of the faith are easily forgotten if we do not spur one another on in them. And though the Lord will keep his promise to us to get us to the end, regardless of how well we think through these, how much better would it be for us if we were to cultivate a more eternal perspective by comforting and encouraging one another with these words that the prophets and the angels long to see and understand, and then point out these evidences of grace where we see them in one another, where we see grace growing in one another. Dear ones, as your pastors, we are praying together towards this end. Please pray with us that we as a church would be more and more struck by the salvation that is ours by faith and the mutual inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. 
Because church, we were made for glory. We were made for glory. That's why God made us for heaven. I'm not saying that because I'm a good guy. Because I've earned it. I'm saying that because we are chosen. And we are, our inheritance is being kept for us. By God. Who paid the price with his own blood. And has sealed us in the spirit. And is working all things together for our good. Not to get us to another weekend. Or to Christmas. But home. The first hearers of this letter were exiles in Rome. They had no home. Ah, but they did. And we do too. It's heaven. And this is my last point for us this morning. That we were made for heaven. This is the crux of the message here, okay? Peter is writing to a church that was scattered and lived in exile. And he was explaining to them that heaven is in view. Their momentary trials were not forever. But even if they weren't increasingly a stench to Roman society, and even if they weren't eventually going to become an enemy of the state, they were still never made for Rome, but for heaven. Now, their practical circumstances of exile certainly all the more demonstrated that they were spiritual exiles. But their citizenship was in heaven, regardless of their social status. And ours is too, because we too were made for heaven where our longings for the imperishable and undefiled, in verse 4, will be finally satisfied at last. Until then, we too, saints, are exiles and scattered. But we are not exiles without hope. Rather, we have a living hope because the imperishable that, of all that we cannot see is guaranteed to be ours as we look to Christ who is preparing us for heaven and heaven for us. And the glory ahead is worth persevering to, church. It is worth it. Even if we can't understand what the glory will be, Paul describes it for us in some indescribable, or some describes the indescribable in in a way that sort of describes it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. This is what he says. That no eye has seen No ear has heard. No heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. He's talking about heaven. We have no capacity to understand it all. Yet, somehow, supernaturally, we have only capacity to long for it. How does Darwin explain that? We were made for heaven, Redeemer. We were made for glory. And that's what's ahead for the church. That's what Jesus told Peter. The man who wrote this letter, he told Peter that he was going ahead to prepare a place for them and that he would send the Spirit to prepare them for the place. So just as Jesus came to us, he is preparing us to come to him. And if that's so, then heaven is more than just a wonderful place beyond which we can imagine. It's more than an exotic timeshare in some faraway location. It's where we dwell with God and finally love him with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our strength. Such a place no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined. But it is more real than the chairs you're sitting on. 
You see, dear church, heaven is a place, but it's more than a place. It's more than a place. Heaven is a person. (laughs) For what would heaven be like if there were no God there? Would heaven be heaven if there were no God there? Let me demonstrate, because I think we already have a sense of this, even in our normal talk to one another. For example, on Sunday morning, kids say, are we going to church? We're going to church. We're at church. Church is a place. But, but it's just a building. You were the church. Jesus did not die for the scaffolding here. It's all going to burn. It's perishable. But search, you are imperishable. You were the church. So in our minds, it's very easy to, to associate the people with the place. So we go to church. We're at church. But there's a greater sense in which if we picked up and went out to the field, that's church because we are the people of God. Heaven, very similar. A place that we associate with a person. But if we're not careful, we think of heaven as some sort of esoteric, ethereal place where just things are better. And we can forget the reason why it's better is because that's where we're able to finally fellowship with God in the way that we long to now but we can't because of sin. Heaven is a place. I'm not saying it's not. Jesus has gone ahead to prepare that place for us. But the whole point of the place is the person. The person who came to us in our image, preparing us so that we can be more and more made like him in heaven. That's, that's heaven. That's God. We're going to heaven to be with God. Therefore, our hope is not in the place, but our hope is in the person and the conditions whereby we may finally be able to love him as we desire. Before we get to any discussion next week on holiness, before we even get to how we're going to live, we need to understand that being a Christian is first and foremost not about what we're doing, but who we love. Peter's talking about that here. That's what he's referencing here. About the joy of a people scattered in exile. Whatever their circumstances, they love Jesus and are filled with joy beyond what circumstances can either give or take away. Their joy in ours is rooted in the love that we have for Jesus because he first loved us and gave his life for us. This is why heaven is a place, but also more than a place, because it's a place where we know God and love God with all of our heart. Let me illustrate this kind of wondrous magnitude with this reality, even in the structure of the passage here. I think I need help. Chad, will you count the number of sentences from verse 3 to 12? I don't want to do math in public. Okay. I'm not tricking. I just need someone to count for me. So, so verses 3 through 12 are all one sentence in the Greek. Okay. Why does this matter? Well, because one sentence can hardly contain enough words to explain this idea. It's five sentences. Seven. Seven sentences? 
Depends on the version of the Bible we have, probably. Let's just say it's a couple of sentences long in our Bibles. In the Greek, it's one sentence. It's one idea. What I'm trying to say is that heaven and the glories that are there for us are bigger than our minds can imagine, but it's actually even bigger than grammatically the text can put in a sentence. It takes five or six or seven sentences to explain this idea. Words can't even capture it. Oh, church, persevere to the end. It's worth it. It's worth it. Not only can our minds not conceive of the great work, but the sentence can hardly even contain all the words to describe the work. That's how glorious heaven is. Redeemer, we were made for heaven. Don't give up. Because as Jesus endured for the joy set before him, so we also may persevere for the joy set before us. This is what Peter's saying in verse 8, that, that we rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And as we think on this great salvation and our hope in the God who is seeing it through to the end, we are obtaining the outcome and goal of our faith. Salvation. We're obtaining it. That's verse 9. We need to point each other to this this week. We need to point one another to this great hope and see our own place in the story here. For consider the prophets of old in, verse, in verses 10 and 11. Okay? Prophets of old. They're earnestly, carefully seeking out all they could understand about the person and work of Jesus. But then in verse 12, we, we see it's, they're not doing it for their own good, but for the hearers of this letter and for us. When they preached the good news and encouraged others to see the goodness of God and his salvation, they were not serving themselves, but us, beloved. What would that look like in our life in the weeks ahead if we looked intently and carefully in the word, thinking about salvation with the point of encouraging some others in it? Lost neighbors, lost family, but also me, I need this encouragement. Mike Navarre needs this encouragement. Chad, Laura, Hallie, sister, you need this encouragement. What would this week look like if we were deliberate, like the prophets of old, to carefully search the scriptures, thinking about salvation that God gives through the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and then looking for someone to encourage with that. How would that change your week ahead, both in the giving of that encouragement and the receiving of it? Would it not encourage you in a living hope that never perishes or fades, that's kept in heaven for you? Would that not solidify your heart and your mind in the God who has chosen you and elected you and promised to get you to the end? Let me just say this. You'll look a lot better this time next week than that flower. You need to hear this this morning, church, because when heaven is our home, and it is our home, when heaven is our home, it's understandable that we would all feel like exiles in the world. When our citizenship is in heaven, 
And we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. If that is true of us, then it is understandable that life is going to be hard and it's going to stink oftentimes because we are exiles here. We are strangers and nothing fits. Nothing works just right. It's all blasted broken because this world is not our home. We need the encouragement from other Christians to encourage us to press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's not all that we see around us. What we see is death and decay and destruction. What we see is tomfoolery and foolishness and evil running rampant. And if we're not careful, it will cause our hearts to wane, our faith to diminish, our spirits to suffer. If we're not careful, all that we see around us that is perishable will begin to shape the way we think about the imperishable, and it is wrong unless we actively, purposefully choose to encourage one another differently. Very practically, I think, as I look at many of the, the women in this church, and I see your lives be consumed by going from emergency to emergency with all of the immediate needs of your kids, recognize the busyness of life, keeps your heart and affections and, distract, and, uh, and attentions distracted. Oftentimes, even at church, with the church, when you're just trying to listen to God's word, so hard to stay focused. And I'm not even talking about the devil that we're going to see in a couple of chapters later on, like a prowling lion looking to devour us. Church, we need one another. We need encouragement from the word. What would that look like for you this week? And also very practically, uh, I, I think it would be very natural for some of us to feel scattered, a little uncertain regarding the way ahead. You know, Mike's gone. He's in Florida. Surely there's some who have thought, what's going to happen? Church, this letter was written to a church that felt like exiles and dispersed. It was written for their hope and encouragement. And I'm going to tell you, church, we're going to be okay. We're all right. We're all right. We are going to gather under the word and hope in it with all the help that God would give us. And we're going to encourage one another in it with the express purpose of mutually encouraging one another to press on. We're going to be okay. Just like this first church or these early churches were, we're going to be fine because God has sealed our inheritance and is keeping it for us in heaven. We have nothing to fear. We have glory to look to. We have glory to look for. And that glory is beyond what we can see in many ways, but it's also within our reach because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all working together to get us to that end. Our living hope. I want, to, I want to close with two final illustrations. The first one is, again, from Peter's life. I'm going to do a lot through this series. I want us to see from Peter's life all these great illustrations of what God is doing for his people. So, a few days after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Lord, he goes to a mount. I don't know him in the mount. 
It's a Mount of Transfiguration. And he sees Jesus there, and Moses and Elijah, and Peter is beside himself. He sees with his own eyes the unspeakable, and he hears with his own ears the unthinkable, that the Father from heaven would say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. I love him. Listen to him. Whatever else is happening in this moment, Peter is seeing and hearing something of glory that none of us have ever known, but is real. He sees it for just a moment, and then it's gone. It's a flash in the pan of eternity in view. He is seeing in the moment a foretaste of glory to come. Indeed, Moses is standing in the promised land. What? Moses in the promised land? When did that happen? With Jesus. He's seeing Elijah. Not running from Jezebel. He wins. And he's seeing Jesus in a way that he's never seen Jesus before. We're going to look more like that than we do now in heaven, church. That is what's in view. Or if it's just out of view, it's within reach, church. Don't give up. Whatever else is happening here, we see in a moment in time that points Peter and us to a salvation that is waiting to be revealed at the last time. We see a foreshadow of glory to come, and thus we feel as exiles in the world too. For our hearts long for heaven, because we know that with everything in us, we were made for Jesus to dwell with him forever.